welcome friends in the room and in Fort Worth, in Houston, El Paso, Tulsa, the Woodland Spring, Cedar Rapids, Tokyo, wherever you're tuning in from. We are excited to continue this series, The Remnant. What's the remnant? It is the people of God. It is the uh, ones that God has preserved throughout every time in all of history. As I was preparing for this message, uh, I was working with kind of a, a team that helps create the sermon prep stuff. And one of the things that came up, it'll make sense in a second, uh, will give us a, a good framework for launching into what we're gonna talk about tonight. And, and it was the subject of the number of things that in school you and I were taught that really uh, have no uh, involvement in our life today. Like the number of things that all throughout elementary school and through junior high and high school and the number of different things, if you think back on it, that you'd be like, oh man, yeah, I did learn that. What, what was that for, huh? And, uh, and so we came up with, with a handful of them that, uh, that if you really, for most of us, it's just funny how uh, much time you spend focusing on this and pop quizzes and tests, and then it's just kind of, it's gone with the wind forever. Here's, one, here's a few of them. Long division. Most of us, does anyone use long division on a regular basis? It's like, and if you do, we got to get you a calculator, friend. <laughs> a protractor and a compass. You remember this thing? What? sort of space age, weird, just, I mean, I know engineers in the room are like, actually, it's just, I use one every day. I've got one right here, if anyone needs an one. But for most of us, it's like, man, this thing that was, uh, you know, I, I'm not even sure I ever learned how to properly use it, but this thing was a part of our life that no longer, just for a season. Um, how about cursive? Remember cursive? I think someone told me they stopped teaching cursive in school. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's this thing that, aside from a signature, really, you don't use, or, or in other words, or most of us don't. In other words, it's always a little weird when you meet someone who still writes in cursive, and you're like, and they're under the age of 60, and you're like, oh, is that for real right there? It's just, it's a, one of those things that you were taught. Uh, here's another one, dissecting a frog. Yeah, who remembers that? Why did they have us dissect a frog? How about the recorder? Who remembers the recorder? Was this an instrument that was made just for elementary school kids? It's like, we can't give them a real instrument, just give them this. Like, I'm not even sure that that's, it's an official instrument, isn't it? It's just kind of like a starter tool that you use. I don't even know, honestly. So if you teach music, help us remember that. The periodic table. Remember memorizing this? And how relevant is that to your life right now? Boron, it's pretty much the only one I remember, potassium. Latin, maybe you went to a school where you were taught Latin. Just a bunch of things that, man, you know, you study, you take the quiz, and, and then it just kind of disappears. Ironically, here's the, here's the irony in all of that. Of all the different things that you would need in life, you would think there'd be a little bit more incorporation of some of the things that, like, when you get out in the real world, you're like, man, how come no one ever taught me this? Like, here would have been some better things, I think. Uh, how to do your taxes. How to do, how to do a budget. Uh, like, you know, sticking, man, there's a lot of people excited about that. How to change the oil in your car, or even the fact that you need to change the oil in your car. How to do car registration, utilities, insurance, household repairs, like just kind of general household repairs, uh, stress management, 
first aid or CPR, I mean, how much better would that be in PE than like, hey, climb this rope, learn how to do first aid or CPR of use of your time, better life skill, uh, interview skills, or negotiation skills, stress management. And then lastly, conflict resolution. Of all the different things that you could have been taught, Um, So many of those have been so much more valuable, and tonight we are talking about one of them that was not taught in any school that that I know of, it certainly wasn't a part of my education experience, and that is conflict resolution. In other words, there wasn't a uh, course when I went to college or even when I went to grad school, there was no official kind of, hey, welcome, this is Conflict 101 and how you resolve it, and yet of all of those skills, more important than any other one Uh, Will conflict resolution determine your ability to experience joy, happiness in life, your ability to have relationships, which is a crucial part, everyone would say, regardless of what you believe, of having a life that has meaning and value and just happiness in general, that you can't have those without the ability to work through and resolve conflict. And yet, no one ever teaches it. And maybe uh, you grew up in a home where it was taught that you're the rare exception for most of us. If we were taught anything about conflict resolution, it was uh, really just by example and not a great example. We learned that, you know, dad can escalate a little too quick and mom can withdraw or uh, be passive aggressive. Or we learn kind of bad expressions of what it looks like to resolve conflict. And yet of everything on that list and of so many different arenas, how crucial if you and I are going to experience a life that is not just filled with superficial relationships, if you and I are gonna experience a life that's not filled with an unhealthy or unhappy marriage, if you and I are not gonna just burn bridges in every direction, we have got to have the skill of conflict resolution. And so tonight, we are gonna look at what God's word says about the topic of conflict resolution. Conflict resolution. And what we're gonna discover and why we're covering this in this series is that the remnant is a people who resolve conflict. Jesus says this over and over and over again. He says, my people are gonna be peacemakers. My people are gonna be the ones who bring conflict resolution about in their relationships and the places they live and work and where they do life. And yet so few of us have ever really been taught it. So tonight we are gonna explore the subject line of the remnant is a people who resolve conflict. The remnant is a people who resolve conflict. Here's what I know. If you will incorporate the stuff that we're about to talk about, regardless of what you believe, regardless of where you kind of are on the spiritual spectrum, your life will be better. You can leave, wake up tomorrow, incorporate the stuff that Jesus and really the Bible teaches in general, and you're gonna experience better relationships, you're gonna have more peace, you're gonna have less conflict. And so we're gonna dive in. This will be really kind of topical, which means we'll jump primarily in Matthew chapter five and Matthew 18 and a few other places, but we're gonna explore the teachings of scripture as it relates to how you and I can be people who resolve the conflicts in our life. So we're gonna kick off the first idea and just explore three essentials for you and I if we're gonna be people who resolve our conflict. Three essentials for you and I to have in our life. Three components of the skill of resolving conflict. The first one, we're gonna pull from Matthew chapter five, verse nine. Jesus, like three sentences in to his ministry in something called the Sermon on the Mount, which is just his first kind of sermon uh, that he launches into, he begins to talk about the idea of bringing peace and how his people bring peace. Here's what he says, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus says that there is a relationship between you being a child of God and your ability to make peace. Now, in other words, that um, just like parents have different attributes that show up inside of their children, God is a heavenly father 
who has attributes that show up inside of his children, and one of the attributes that shows up inside of his children is the ability to make peace. And for you and I to know that every single conflict is an opportunity for us to bring about peace will require the first essential to the skill of resolving conflict is that we have to have a change in perspective or a perspective change on the idea of conflict. Because conflict, I think a lot of us came in the room and it's not our favorite subject to talk about. It's probably not our favorite thing to be a part of. We're not looking for more conflict in life. That's really what I'm looking for. Most of us didn't come in with that. And often we see it as something that is a bad thing. That man, every time there's conflict, that's really bad, right? Wrong. The Bible says you and I need to have a perspective change. Every time there's conflict, we need to have the perspective that we have a great opportunity to show the world who our Heavenly Father is, to show the world whose children we are, if you will, that our first point from tonight, from the text, is a perspective to change, that if you and I are going to be people who bring about peace, who resolve conflict, we have to be people who have a change in perspective. Conflict is not a bad thing, and it is an opportunity, if handled well, to show the world who our Heavenly Father is, or to honor our God, to strengthen relationships, and to grow ourselves in general. And Jesus says, man, you will see the children of God will have this quality from their parents. Like we're about to, my wife is, is due to have a baby on Friday. And yeah, I know, buckle up, you can pray for that. And for us, because we're about to not sleep. And, um, and one of the things that like when you're about to have a baby, you begin to think through and, and your mind can drift to is like, oh, what kind of attributes are they gonna have and what are they gonna look like? Here's what we pretty much know they're gonna look like. They're gonna have some attributes either from their mother or father from both and they're gonna incorporate, I mean, it just kind of goes without saying, uh, I know it's mind-blowing stuff, that they're gonna have attributes from their parents or a child will have attributes from their parents. That's Jesus's point, that the children of God are gonna be people who bring about peace in their relationships. Are you someone who brings about peace, who moves in the direction of peace when there's conflict in your relationships? Because Jesus says that is a quality that will mark his people. Not only is conflict a great opportunity because it will honor God or show who your heavenly father is. I mean, we've all experienced that conflict, when resolved well, strengthens relationships. That's an opportunity to strengthen your relationship. In other words, it doesn't have to drive you apart. It can drive you and make you stronger together. In fact, here's what's crazy. Even psychology or people, non-Christians would say that uh, the ideal relationship, if you are a type of person in the room looking for the ideal dating relationship, this is for you, which is a lot of us. The ideal dating relationship, people often think, has no conflict. And study after study says, man, conflict, if you have a relationship that has zero conflict, you are in trouble because it's a sign of unhealth. In other words, if there's absence of conflict, generally they would say it either points to a codependency or something really unhealthy where one partner feels like they can't reject or can't disagree at any point, or it points to a narcissist being involved who only wants to be around people who get along with them. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, if, if you only want to be around people who agree with you every time, it's really hard to respect someone who never disagrees with you. Think about that. Like in other words, if you're like, yeah, I just want someone who agrees with everything that I think. It's really hard to respect someone who just, they have nothing to offer you in life. They're like, whatever you say, that is our world. That's not someone who's like, man, I really respect you. And in a healthy relationship, there's respect for one another. So conflict is not a bad thing or the absence of con conflict is not necessarily a good thing. The presence of conflict resolution is a great thing. That if you wanna have a healthy relationship, it won't be just, man, I'm concerned because we've had a few conflicts. It is not conflict alone 
that determines or uh, whether it's a bad relationship. It is the ability to resolve conflict that will serve you in a dating relationship, in a marriage someday, because, man, you are going to have conflict. The skill of conflict resolution is like, man, a daily thing, because we only fight in my house like once a day, but it's a crucial one, maybe twice sometimes. And resolving conflict is a crucial skill that you are going to learn now or you are going to painfully um, learn through the school of hard knocks and want to revisit this message at a later day. And so inside of your dating relationships, the ability to resolve and to move towards peace. And so we're going to explore a little bit of the steps that are involved for you and I to be a part of that. Jesus, the last thing about conflict and the perspective we're to have is it is a big deal, he says. In Matthew chapter five, we're not gonna read this, but chapter five, verse 23 and 24, you can read it later. He essentially says, look, I want you to prioritize working through your conflicts, working through the problems in your relationships above even worshiping me. And so if you're in church, you find yourself at a place where you're like, oh man, I'm focused on going to the service and you realize you have a problem or you're in conflict with a brother or a sister, I want you to get up and I want you to leave and I want you to move in that direction. Some of you, the best thing you can do tonight is go make a phone call. There's someone that you need to reach out to to begin to take the steps towards resolving the conflict. So that's the first thing. You and I have to have the perspective of, man, conflict is not a bad thing, but it is a great opportunity to show the world who's our Heavenly Father or to honor our Heavenly Father. The second part of you and I experiencing the ability to resolve conflict inside of our life is this, that you and I have to know that in every conflict, you have a part to own. In every conflict, Every single conflict you've ever been a part of, you have a role or you have played a part and you have a part that you need to own in the conversation where you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to call it what it is and own what you've done. Own your fault. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter seven, verses three through five. Why do you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Gosh, I love it. You gotta love Jesus. He uses this like exaggerated scenario where he's like, look, uh, you need to be someone who focuses on owning first your own faults, your own stuff, your own uh, role in whatever conflict or whatever issues or disagreements that you've had. And he uses an exaggerated situation where it's like, it's like there's a guy who has a plank, a two by four, just <laughs> sticking out of his eye, going around being like, hey, look, excuse me, I think I see something in your eye over there. I've got my tweezers out. And Jesus would say, look, that's absurd. And, uh, and his point is not that you should never be someone who reaches out and helps people see the speck in their eye. His point is that you need to prioritize, and I need to prioritize owning my fault, owning my part in whatever disagreement first. In other words, before I'm gonna deal any with you, I wanna make sure that I'm someone who says, man, I need to own my own part here. This is, I think, the hardest part of resolving conflict. Because usually, like, we can't really tell that we have a plank sticking out of our eye, and we're just prone to think, like, yeah, the biggest problem is because of her, and if she would have just, you know, called him, or she would have done X, or he would have done X, then none of this would have happened anymore, and we think that inside of our conflict, it's hard for me to see what my role was. Being awesome? Is that what I need to apologize for? I'm being too nice. I'm just too much of a hard worker. I expect too much of people. What should I have? And we don't sit there and thoughtfully say, man, what can I own? How can I see this from the other person's perspective? How can I 
be someone who owns the ways that I could have communicated better, the ways that maybe you know, my tone or the words that I use could have been better, the timing that I had could have been better. What are the things that I can sit down and I'm gonna own? I just wanna start with this. I wanna own that, that the way that I told you, uh, or the way that I spoke to you in that moment could have been better. Will you please forgive me? And Jesus would say, whatever you can, own in those different situations. And so I'm gonna go one step further and incorporate a tool that, that we use around here in some other ministries that um, helps, uh, can help you identify some of the different tendencies that all of us have when it relates to conflict. Some of the different bad patterns that most of us get into or our default is, because oftentimes it's kind of our default that will lead us usually in a step towards uh, discovering in the conflict what my role is. And it's something called weenie that all of us need to know are weenie. What is a weenie? A weenie is the four negative types of, uh, of conflict resolution or conflict patterns that people have that usually, by and large, people fit into one of these categories. W, being withdrawal. E, being escalate. N, being negative interpretation. I, being invalidate. Withdrawal, do I withdraw? Do I escalate? What is my conflict pattern? Because generally speaking, it's one of these that's kind of a part of uh, how I... Um, acted in a way that, man, was not God's best, and I need to own my part. Do I withdraw? Do I escalate? Am I a negative interpreter? Am I an invalidator? Maybe I'm all of the above. For me, I am an escalator and an invalidator. And so I, I'm the type of person who, like, almost, I kind of, like, have something in part of me that, like, likes conflict, or it's weird. It's like a debate, and I'm like, yeah, let's do this. Here's what I think is wrong with you. And uh, get the PowerPoint back up there. And... Uh, and I can just escalate and, um, and cause a lot of harm inside of my marriage. And, um, and I'm married to a withdrawer, who is, um, who, which is an awesome recipe, because it's like, get back here. <laughs> That's so bad. We're working on it, guys. We're in community, and Jesus is taking ground. But those are our tendencies. So me, or even with our team, my tendency can be uh, to invalidate and uh, and to further invalidate when someone comes and expresses like, hey, it hurt me when you said that. And I'm like, well, here's why you shouldn't have been hurt and give 18 reasons why, yeah, this is your problem, okay? Let's pray for you. And, uh, <laughs> and it's wrong. And it is, to whatever degree I allow it to continue or I allow it to happen, it's hurting my relationships. And so inside of the conflicts that you have, you have a part to own. You probably have a style or um, some ways that, that you are dysfunctional in the ways that you conflict. Are you a withdrawer, an escalator, a negative interpreter, or an invalidator? The third step, so that's our second. You and I have a perspective to have, which is that conflict's an opportunity, it's not bad. You and I have a part to own. I have to own 100% of my 2%, even if it's just 2%, like 98% of the conflict is their fault. Like, yes, I forgot the birthday cake. They forgot the birthday. And I have to own all of my 2%, all of my 1%. Whatever part I have in the conflict, I want to own 100% of that. I want to lead out with that. And then, finally, the scriptures lay out, where we're going to spend more of our time here, a path to pursue peace. The Bible really makes it as clear as any of the other skills that maybe we talk about inside of this, this uh, series on the remnant, there is a path Jesus gives, kind of like here's your four steps towards resolving conflict with one another, with believers inside of it. 
And so before we go there, I'm gonna give you the other thing the scripture says as it relates to resolving conflict. That um, you and I are to be people who seek to overlook conflict whenever we can. That in other words, scripture says this in Proverbs 19:11. that how do I know if this is, uh, in other words, let me say this. Am I to be someone who every time I either get hurt or I feel misunderstood or every time something doesn't go how I think it should, I'm to pursue that recklessly as though it's a conflict? Or every time maybe you know, someone said something that, that um, impacted me, should I pursue that as a conflict? No, not necessarily. The Bible says in Proverbs 19, verse 11, that a person's wisdom yields patience and it is to one's glory or it is a glorious thing to overlook an offense. The Bible says that you and I are to overlook offenses whenever we can. The, the truth of the matter, though, is, and so we'll talk about what does it, look to, what does it mean to overlook an offense and how do I know whenever I can, um, is a lot of us, I think, if we were honest, we, we try to overlook offenses. We try to, someone says something mean and they kind of make a joke at us and they're like, ha, ha, man, that really hurt me right there. I'm not upset. I'm not, I'm fine. Okay, it's great. I hate this person. And that's how we walk away. <laughs> And we tell ourselves, it's not that big of a deal. I'm just going to go tell all these other people about you and how mean you are. And that's what we do. And that's not resolving the conflict. And it's not looking the other way. The Bible says that you and I, when we can, should overlook it. How do we know if we can? If you find yourself replaying a conversation with someone over and over and over again, it's probably an indicator that you need to have a conversation with them. In other words, if someone does an action, does something that hurts you, says something that um, either you felt was an inaccurate representation of you or undermined you or hurt your feelings, and you find yourself kind of driving down the road, replaying the tape and thinking through what you should have said and how next time you're going to and everyone's going to point at them and laugh, and, and you find yourself replaying that or you find yourself in the shower just dominating these hypothetical conversations in your mind, you probably need to move towards that person, to have a conversation. If you, if you find yourself, and this is a really common one, where anytime you're around them, the only thing you can think about is whatever incident was there. You're just like, yeah, uh-huh, that's great. Yeah, uh, of course, you need a ride too. Well, great, yeah. Uh, how about you get some friends first, huh? Because you told me I didn't have any friends and I'm not your friend and all you can think about is that and you're not saying it, but it's just kind of like, uh, you need to have the conversation. Or anytime that someone brings up their name, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, used, to, I used to like him too until I started liking great people. And then I stopped liking him. <laughs> and um, so you need to have the conversation. So now that we've realized that we need to have the conversation, if we find ourselves just replaying the tape, how do we have that conversation? What does it look like to go through biblically the process of having that conversation? With a believer, Jesus makes it really clear. We're gonna come back to, and by a believer, I mean a follower of Jesus. Here's what Jesus says are the four steps, according to Jesus, in which you and I are people who bring about peace. We're not peace fakers. We are peacemakers. And we bring about peace by following Jesus' instructions. He says this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, whether that's against you, whether it's just in general he's given instructions for the church, but if they've sinned and they sinned against you, they hurt you or a word was said, go to them and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, 
dude, how would the church change if just this verse was embraced and adopted and played out all over our country? That whenever someone hurts me, I'm going to go directly to them. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So Jesus says, whenever you find yourself in a situation where someone's hurt you, where someone is in sin, or someone has sinned against you, that you and I are to be people who go to them. We talk to them, not about them. I only talk to people who are either a part of the problem or a part of the solution. I don't vent. I don't, you know, look for uh, things to share and kind of let me just bounce stuff off of you to justify how I feel in this moment. I go directly to that person. I share directly with them in private for the hopes not of of hurting them or wounding them back for the hopes of winning them back, Jesus says, that the body of Christ, and this is a big problem, honestly. There are a lot of you in the room who are talking about people and you're not talking to people and it's disgusting and it's an offense to God. If you ever find yourself talking negatively about someone who is not present, you are in sin and you need to stop and you need to repent, and you need to ask for the forgiveness from the person who you negatively talked about and the person who you negatively talked to about the other person. You need to say, hey, I need to ask for your forgiveness because I was talking badly about Bill or insert fill in the blank, whatever their name is, and I've tainted your perspective on him, and now I wanna go with Bill, and I just wanna say, hey, I was talking negatively about you to X person. If you were to come to me and you uh, wanted to share something about JP and, you know, how uh, I can't believe it. He's just so big time and I can't believe what he thinks. You know, he's just got a big head, literally and, you know, prideful. And, you know, and I'm going <laughs> to, have you talked to him about this? Here's what I know about JP. He's not a perfect person. He knows he's not a perfect person. And he wants to know the ways that men, his imperfections uh, have hurt someone or wounded someone or maybe been misunderstood in ways that he could be more um, effective as a follower of Jesus. And so I'm gonna do this. You have 24 hours to go talk to him. And if you can't reach out in the next 24 hours, I'm gonna reach out and I'm gonna tell him what you shared with me. And then collectively, we're all gonna get together and process through this because this is clearly something that's important enough for you to share. And I know If it's at that level, it's gonna be important enough for JP, he's gonna wanna learn and know and grow through it. No, dude, don't do that, that's so awkward. Oh my gosh, don't do that. It's what the Bible commands us to do. And if you're someone who is having others share with you, it's your role to tell them, have you shared this with them? Because you, whenever you don't do that, you become a part of the problem. You are equally guilty of tolerating gossip. And if you're talking bad about people and it is happening in this room, it is a sin. Talk to people, not about people. And Jesus says you go directly to them. And here's what you do whenever, this is so huge. So if if you kind of tuned out for just a second, come all the way back in here. Stop counting the wood things right here. Here is how, here's what you do. Whenever you go right to them, you go to them and you address what's, what's going on. Here's what you need to do. It's so huge, I promise you. This is worth your money right now. I'm about to give you exactly what you're gonna, what you're gonna share with that person. So tune back in wherever you're listening from. You do, you focus on two things, two very specific things whenever I go to them. The person's specific behavior, exactly the behavior, 
and the emotional response it created in me. You don't focus on motive. You don't focus on character. You're always, a t- this is just who you are. You're a bad apple and a bad seed and I can't believe you and unbelievable. You always, you don't focus on motive and when you do that, all you, you were just trying to make me look bad. That's what you were trying to do. You don't focus on motive. You focus on the specific behavior and the emotional response it created in, we, in you. Because you don't know motive, I don't know motive. We can assume, we can guess, we can, we can presume. But as followers of Jesus, we're believing the best. Here's the specific behavior. When you said that about me in front of everyone, it made me feel little. It hurt my feelings. I share exactly the specific behavior. And then the way that when you, um, when you told me that you were gonna come to that event, and then you kind of blew me off, or you didn't answer my phone call 12 days in a row or 12 times in a row, it made me feel like you don't care about me. You focus on the specific behavior and the emotional response that it created within you. Stay away from character. You stay away from motive. This will save you so much money in marriage counseling someday. I can't even tell you. If you will be someone who just says, this is, this is the specific. I'm not gonna assume it's because you disrespect me, because you don't care about me, because you know, you're different. We think different. We communicate differently. I'm not gonna go and attack your character. I'm just gonna say this is the specific behavior. And this is the emotional response it created inside of me. And Jesus says you go directly to that person. If they don't listen, he says you go to step two, which is this. If they will not listen, you take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So Jesus says, you go to that person, you share with them uh, either an area where you're you're seeing them live contrary to God's word. You're seeing them um, uh, either sin against you or just you see a sin in their life. You love them enough to move in and to discuss that with them. And if they don't listen, he says, you just widen the circle bring in another person, uh, another follower of Jesus, or maybe two other followers of Jesus. Ideally, they're objective. They're not someone who, um, if you bring them with you, they're gonna be like, great, they're teaming up on me, double team, and they're not gonna feel that. Someone who's objective, who they know cares about them, and you widen the circle, and you say, look, I pointed out with Kevin that when he uh, said this, it hurt me, or this particular behavior in his life, I think is inconsistent with God's will. He's living contrary to God's word. But I may be wrong. Will you help us together, collectively work towards whatever God's best would be or what God's word says? And if the person still goes, no, talk to the hand, you and God can can talk to the hand. I'm not listening. Then it says, you do step three, Jesus says, which is this. If they still refuse, tell it to the church. Now, the word church in this time is just the word assembly. Ecclesia is a Greek word that was here used, and it just means the gathering, the assembly. It's more closely, uh, it's, it's closer to a community group if you're a Watermark member or a small group if you're at another church. Uh, it's closer to that than it is up here. It's not like, all right, get him out here. Here we go. This guy, you need to know. <clears throat> it's more closely, tell it to his community group, tell it to um, uh, the community groups that may be represented and involved. And it says, if they still won't listen to the church, then go on to step four. And if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So Jesus goes four steps. Go to them individually, widen the circle as necessary from there. If they still continue to say, I don't care what the Bible says. 
then treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. What is a pagan or a tax collector and how, what does that mean? A pagan was essentially someone who just had no relationship with God. He may have believed in the gods, but was not a follower of Christ. Same with the tax collector. And Jesus says, that's the type of way you're gonna now treat them. Now, how did Jesus, this is really important, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Like, did, did Jesus just say, hey, if they still won't listen, then write them off and blog about them and talk mean about them on Facebook? No, Jesus loved pagans and tax collectors. He spent time with them, he invested in them, he loved them. What is your response and my response if someone says, look, I'm continuing, I don't care what the Bible says about marriage. I don't care what it says about premarital sex. I don't care what it says about um, life. I don't care what it says about alcohol. I don't care what it says about money. I don't care about that stuff. Then you know how to treat that person as a pagan and tax collector. Jesus loved the pagan and tax collector. He didn't write them out of their life. He didn't hold them to the same standard that he held followers of Christ to. In other words, followers of Christ said, follow me. To those who didn't share those values, he didn't hold them to that standard, but he still loved those people so you and I are to do with those in our life who continue to say, I don't care what God's word says. You don't write them off. You love them like Jesus commanded us to. And you don't hold them to the same standards that you hold followers of Christ to. So he indicates that there is a difference in the way that we treat a person, the way that we resolve relationships or conflicts based on whether or not they are a follower of Christ. And so now I'm gonna finish up with just a little bit of driving this home to make it super practical as we talk through how do we resolve conflicts depending on if they are a believer or a non-believer inside of our world and inside of our life. These are giant dice. And they were made by an amazing member of our team and they will kind of lay out some of the four different arenas where most of us have conflict in life. Our family, our work, our dating relationships, and our friends. These are the four primary places that you and I are gonna have conflict. And they're usually gonna be with people, no, they're always gonna be with people who are either Christians or exes, non-Christians. And uh, <laughs> I don't know how else to convey that. Uh, and so let's talk about it. Let's, let's set up a scenario where, hey, is a person, all right, great. So they are a non-believer and they are a, Dating relationship. Okay, you shouldn't be dating a non-believer. <laughs> so we're gonna roll the dice again. They're a family member who is not a follower of Jesus. So maybe you have a sibling. True story. You should not date someone who's not following Christ. There's a lot of messages that we've done on that. Uh, and 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, you and I are not to be unequally yoked. If you want a recipe to have maximum conflict in your life and marriage, you should marry someone who doesn't have Jesus as the most important person in their life. So before we cover that and go into the family, now, on to family. Family, let's say that you have a sibling who's not a believer, you have a, a, a parent who's not a believer. What is you and I's role as it relates to resolving conflict? Maybe they've hurt us by the tone that they've used, by the actions they've taken, by the manipulative patterns and the passive-aggressive language that they use. What, what is you and I's role as it relates to resolving conflict with a sibling who's not a believer? or a parent who's not a believer. Uh, maybe it's a sibling who's not a believer. You and I have the same role every single time, that you and I are to own our part in every conversation. Anytime we can own our part. I'm gonna own my part. I wanna own anything I can. I could have communicated better. I could have been a better sibling. I wanna own any of the ways that I was less than God's best to you, brother or sister. 
True family member by that, I mean a family member. I wanna own anything that I can. And then, they're not a believer. I'm gonna extend grace. If they're not a believer and they act like they're not a believer, they're just fulfilling their job description. I'm not gonna hold them and be like, man, you should have been a lot kinder and more like Jesus. Uh, They're not a follower of Christ. And so I'm gonna own my part. I'm gonna extend grace and I'm gonna seek to model Christ to that person. What if they are a friend who is a believer? If they're a friend who's hurt me in some way, I'm gonna go to that person and I'm gonna follow Jesus' four steps. I'm gonna identify the specific behavior and how it made me feel to them individually, privately. And if they won't listen and they reject that, then I'm gonna widen the circle as necessary. What if they are a a non-believer at work? I'm gonna do the same thing. If a coworker's rude to me, Maybe, they, um, maybe my boss is like, drops the F-bomb and I can't believe you and you're terrible. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna own whatever I can. I should have had that reporting quicker. Will you please forgive me? How can I continue to grow and be a better employee? I'm gonna own whatever I can. I'm gonna extend grace. And not that there's never a time for you to help uh, a leader that may be a non-believer or a coworker that's a non-believer over you grow in their ability to communicate. But by and large, I'm gonna assume, man, I'm gonna own my part, I'm gonna extend grace to them, and I'm gonna seek to show the love of Christ to that person inside of that workplace. Over and over, the scripture commands, this is what you and I are to do. Not to stay in um, you know, violent or uh, uh, workplaces that are leading you directly into sin, but you and I, as it relates to a work relationship or a coworker that is not a believer, I own my part, if I can own anything, and I extend grace, and I show them the love that Christ showed to me in hopes that maybe God's gonna reach out and through our relationship, invite them into a relationship with their Savior. What about if they're uh, in a dating relationship and they are a believer? That's probably a, a crucial one to talk about. What if they're dating someone and they are a believer? What does it look like to work through Matthew 18? Uh, Depending on the relationship and the hurt that's involved, it wouldn't be inappropriate to go there, depending on the relationship and the hurt that's involved, to go and to ask for forgiveness, to own whatever part that you can, and to seek as best you can to leave that person better than you found them. To own the ways that you could have led them better or brought more clarity to the relationship, to own the ways that you uh, allowed insecurity to govern or to be the leader of your actions more than the spirit of God or more than the faith that you hold to. That there's times that, man, it's, it's totally appropriate and inbounds. And here's what's big. Here's why if you date a non-believer, you're gonna be set up for a lot of pain. The pain that comes from dating or the conflicts that come from dating someone who's not following Jesus are infinitely worse than the conflicts that are gonna come from someone who is. I mean, truly, not just, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm at the porch. A lot of non-followers of Jesus that attend the porch every week. I mean, actually following Christ. By and large, if you're dating someone, the two of you are following Christ, you're not gonna be like, I can't believe he cheated on me and he slept with her because he's not sleeping with you. He's someone who holds the idea of sexuality and sex as something that God gave as an incredible gift towards marriage. So a lot of the pain and the heartbreak and the conflict and just the dysfunction of our dating relationships, you will be protected from if you are consistent 
to date someone who is following Jesus with the life that they live. And every conflict, you and I, as a wrap-up, have a perspective to have. It is not a bad thing. It is an opportunity, and one of the greatest opportunities that we have to honor Christ. You and I have a part to own. We always have a part to own. And finally, you and I have a path towards peace that Christ has given us. Let me close with this. This is why this is such a big deal to God. The Bible talks about conflict over and over and over again. In Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter four, I mean, over and over and over again, almost like every book in the New Testament, it's like, man, you guys are gonna be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and keep one another close in relationship. Why is God so passionate about relationships being healed? Because the whole message of the Bible is about a relationship being healed. The message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and the good news of really the New Testament and the Bible in general is that you and I were in conflict with God. You and I were what the Bible says, children of wrath. Because of the sinful decisions that you and I have made, because of the decisions in your life that you've made, you're ashamed of, nobody even knows about. Because of the decisions that you look back and you're just filled with embarrassment and regret and I can't believe that I did that. Because of the decisions that you made this past weekend, because of any sinful action that you and I take, we were in conflict with God. We were by birth and by choice enemies of God. And what did God do? What did the heart of God move him to do? The Bible says in Romans chapter five, verse eight, that God demonstrates his love for this while we were still in conflict, while we had nothing and wanted nothing to do with God, while we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us and demonstrated God's love for us. Why is God passionate about relationships being reconciled? That's the point of the Bible, is that all of us had this broken relationship and God said, I will lay down even my life to restore that relationship, to bring that healing involved to that relationship. And now as the people of God who have peace with God, we go about and we introduce peace into the world around us. And we say that not only can you have peace with one another, you can have peace with the God who's there, who would lay down even his life for his enemies. I mean, think about that. Jesus gave this radical ethic of love, like love like our world has never seen. I know our world thinks they know what love is all about. They have no idea. They think love is let me do whatever I want, whenever I want. That's not loving. Jesus introduces this radical love that says, I am willing to sacrifice whatever it takes for your good, for your benefit, even my own life. And I will lay down, not for my my friends and not for people who try really hard and do good things. The Bible says that when you could do nothing, he ran towards you and laid his life down. He's a God of such great love, he dies for his enemies. Think about that. What type of love dies for their enemies? We live in a world that's so fractured right now in every single direction, racist, or racially, politically, uh, uh, sexually, or sex genders, and all these different things, all these different, everyone's looking to fight. And God says, look, I'm not here to take sides, I'm here to take over this world. And I gave my own life so that anyone, wants, anyone who wants to know the God who is there can step into a relationship with me. And I will bring about healing and they will become an agent of peace inside of this world. There is no other message in all of our world, like the message that Jesus brings. There's no words inside of the book of of, uh, the Quran of, of this picture of a God who's willing to even die for his enemies. Think about that. American soldiers lay down their lives and say, we will die for ISIS. That's crazy. And yet that's the picture inside of the Bible. That's the picture of the God who's there. That's the picture that our God is passionate about you and I experiencing 
And when we begin to know and focus on him, all of a sudden the conflicts, all of a sudden the ways that we were the victim and they hurt us and they did this to me, all of a sudden that shrinks compared to what God, after everything I did to him, is willing to do for me. If you've never had a moment where you have accepted the God who's there, the God unlike any other religion, the one true God, who despite the fact that you, as nice as you are, are an enemy, unless you've accepted what he did on the cross and dying in your place and rising from the dead, tonight is your night. And he's so crazy about you having a restored relationship, not just with family and friends and dating and work people, but with him, that he's already proven I will go to any length necessary. Does our world need more peace or what? Unlike any time I've ever seen, everyone is interested in just, you're the problem, you're the problem, you're the problem. And the body of Christ is quick to say, whenever they're at fault, here was the problem that I introduced, and it was wrong. You can own whatever part you want or not. You don't need to. I'm not even going to make that a part of the deal. I want to make sure I own mine. Because the God who's there that despite the fact that he did nothing wrong, would give his life for me. And now I get to bring peace about that shows I'm one of his children. I'm a peacemaker. Let me pray. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna give us just a moment to pray wherever you are. And I just want you to pray for the relationships inside of your life where you know you need to take action. I want you to pray for clarity to see your part. And then I want you to pray for the body of Christ inside of our country, inside of everything that's going on and all the noise and all the yelling that we would say, God, start with us. Would you help us to be your people, us to bring the peace? 78% of America claims to be Christian. What would happen if 78% of the people in our country began to say, I'm gonna be a person who brings about peace. And so I'm gonna give you a minute to pray wherever you are for yourself, for the relational conflict that you have, and then for the body of Christ in general. And then I'm gonna close this out, and then we'll go into worship. Father, would you help us to be peacemakers? Would you help us to resemble more the Prince of Peace, your Son, Jesus? 
pray for just the relationships inside of this room where people know that they need to own their part. They've been talking bad about people. They've been unwilling to move in the direction of reconciling with people. They've burned bridges behind them. That you would, by your grace and by your spirit and by your power, bring healing. If nothing else, to just the 3,000 represented here and the few thousand more represented in other locations. Would you allow the body of Christ in our country to be strong, to be humble, to be gracious, to extend love, to model the love of Christ, to own our part? And would you heal our land? And would you start with us? Start with me. Make us your agents of peace. In the name of the Prince of Peace, we pray. Amen.